All right, thanks guys for joining me. Uh, it's uh, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, so this is a little bit of a new format that we're going to try out. But uh, I, I want to welcome you guys, uh, Parker Lewis, of course, um, now of Zap, right, and Tur Demister, who is uh, Adamant Capital still, Adamant Research, Adamant yes. Research. Yeah. Yes. So uh, you know, I uh, you guys are obviously really. Um, well known in the space as being, you know, knowledgeable about what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective and stuff. So that's kind of where I wanted to go. But uh, but thanks for thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, it's good to be back, Jimmy. I think uh, <laughs> it's good. To, it's good to have you back in Austin. Have you back recording a podcast, getting a book out, mm. and uh, you know, very glad to be here with Tur. And being able to to welcome you back to the podcasting world too, because huh? you, you had a pretty long hiatus there. Yeah. Appreciate that. Same as excited as I am to keep hearing about your uh, your world travels. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to uh, do something about that at some other point. But today, I want to talk about uh, macro and what is going on. So I'll, I'll sort of throw this question out uh, out out to you guys and uh, see where it goes. But What's your interpretation of what the Fed has done over the past year? Because obviously rates have tightened significantly, right? Like it's gone from, I don't know, it was uh, almost 0% to what, what's it now, five something. Uh, so uh, mortgage rates are, I think, 30-year mortgage is like hitting like 8% range, something like that. Um, what's, what, what's the, what are they thinking? What, what are they doing and why are they doing it? Want to take that? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I mean, I don't know about the past, ex exactly the past year, mm -hmm. but I just feel like they're stuck. You know, mm -hmm. they, um, I think they want to ease because uh, they're sensing that, I mean, obviously they're sensing that banks are in trouble. Even mm -hmm. Charles Schwab is in trouble. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's a disaster. Um, uh, I think the narrative has kind of disappeared from the, the newspaper headlines that all these banks are in trouble, but, um, you know, and, and so with, with the rates being this high, that's not going to change. Uh, there's, there's just so many institutions across the board who, you know, I, I compare it with, um, the oxygen, right? I mean, you just, as you raise the interest rates, you turn down the oxygen and who's going to choke and die first. It's the entities that have the highest debt. Mm. Um, and the, the entities with the shortest, uh, duration debt and you know, the U S government is, is one of them. So, <laughs> so, so they know they have to ease the question is just when, and how can they do it while saving face? And so mm. it'd be convenient if there was some kind of a market downturn, that they could point at as a reason, you know, why, mm -hmm. um, you know, they are touting, everyone seems to be touting that inflation is going down. Uh -huh. I've been listening to public radio and, um, they keep putting out this word disinflation. They just love that. <laughs> like disinflate cause it sounds good. And it's kind of sounds like the opposite of inflation, but it really, all it is is like the inflation is slowing. The growth of the inflation is slowing down. So it's kind of saying like, well, the cancer is not in remission, but it's not growing as fast anymore. It's like, uh. so anyway, like that's kind of my general take is that they are, they are going to lower it eventually. I think that we are close to the max that they could ever do, like maybe some cosmetic increases from here, mm. but I don't think they can be aggressive anymore because, you know, we're already paying a, I mean, we, the government is already uh, up for, what is it now, a trillion dollars just to pay the interest rate mm. for, for, you know, the interest payments for a year. So that's about, I think that's about as far as things can go. Yeah. What I do think, you think, you know, 
sir brought up a really important point that um, I think it's the banks that mm. the, you know, if I, because they've kind of faded to the background, but mm. the, the series of bank failures that happened in March, that the problem that caused that mm. has not gone away. Mm-hmm. It was directly related to the fed raising interest rates very mm. quickly. Mm. Um, and if the Fed was reacting to inflation increasing, really started to accelerate in um, the fall of 2021, mm. and then they started raising interest rates in 2022, and then they really accelerated things as, as, as you know, as their own metric of reported inflation, mm-hmm. which lags real inflation, um, started to to get out of control. Well, their rapid increase of interest rates created. Essentially, run on the banks, mm-hmm. the weakest banks, um, and it always will. And that, while that happened in March, and kind of people have turned the TV off on that episode, the the underlying issues that cause that, in my view, are still there, and they will reappear. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Fed can't do a lot more. They are in this kind of catch twenty two, mm-hmm. where the banking system is incredibly fragile. At the same time, where the raising of interest rates, like they might be able to reduce asset prices, but gas at the gas station is not getting cheaper and food at the grocery store is not getting cheaper. And what you notice, the the connection is that anything that has to be produced with human time mm. has not gotten cheaper. It's getting more <laughs> expensive. Mm. Things that already existed, real assets in the past, they can control those prices because they're supported by a lot of leverage. Mm. And so basically, it's not really even a game of chicken. It's just like, they're walking into a buzzsaw and you mm. don't know exactly when they're going to hit the buzzsaw, <laughs> but it's inevitable that they will just like they did in September of 2019, which set off the most recent money printing epic. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like they, they've started to psyop people into this idea of a soft landing or disinflation or uh, Krugman's come out and said, no, I think this the, the long-term inflation should now be 3% out of the blue, you know, just made up a new number. Like why not four, Paul, why not 5%? And that everything ties back to, um, you can pull on a thread, Uh but once you break it, you can't push it back in. Mm. And so they're still, they're still pulling on it and they think that they have, you know, more control that they do, but it's just inevitable that something without being able to predict exactly what breaks. Mm. Um, and, I like to reinforce for people that in 2017, when they started to unwind post-financial crisis QE, it took about two years mm. to hit that buzzsaw. Um, but that also during Lehman Bro- or Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns happened in March of 2008. Lehman happened six months later in September mm. of 2008. The repo markets broke in September of 2019. The crisis really didn't wasn't felt until March of 2020. The banks failed in March. You know, it's like, I think everyone expects that that first crack in the facade to ultimately be the ultimate crisis and to think that it's gone away. It's just bubbling under the surface and that each moment, each day that this over leveraged world exists with higher interest rates, more and more is getting broken. And you just kind of got to try to get as far away or insulate yourself from the blast radius, knowing that you're not going to be able to totally be right. Um, you know, immune from whatever happens. Yeah, it's like with that uh, that submarine story where <laughs> they heard cracking every time they went down and they just kind of justified as like, oh, it's just the material is just setting. It's like, no, what probably happened is that they were cracked and they got worse and worse and worse over time. And uh, th- that's kind of how I feel about how things are now. It's like, yeah, we saw the first cracks 
and those are still there not going away and and people are now responding to that and and like Evergrande just uh, just went bust like that's a huge uh, you know real estate company out of China and like who knows what's next? Like Schwab is are, in the news. Are they now. also a shipping company? Isn't that it wasn't Evergrande the Evergreen, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Evergrande is the real estate developer. Yeah, it's this yeah. Enormous real estate company that finally uh, defaulted on their uh, I think bond payments. Um but so yeah, I agree. And it's it's I agree. Uh, it's it's good that you brought up that twenty nineteen episode because people like to think like, oh, there were bailouts because and, and stimulus because of COVID. It's like, no, 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 COVID was awfully convenient from <laughs> from a, a government bailout point of view because the the problems were already there like markets mm. were were like you said from between 2017 and 19 they're starting to tighten and uh, the bus sell was coming regardless of you know this global pandemic mm. yeah that that is one thing too that mm -hmm. i think people easily forget mm. that the so the repo market and just kind of provide the context mm -hmm. the the fed tried to reverse out before right mm -hmm. they had so a little like fast forward or rewind on history they introduced 3.6 trillion dollars mm -hmm. into the financial system from 2008 to mm -hmm. 2014 then in 2017 tried to withdraw that money that they had increased the money supply by five times mm -hmm. and then they so september of 2017 they started to to take that money out the 3.6 trillion mm. the the repo markets which is a large overnight funding Mm -hmm. market um had an interest rate of three percent one day and then the next day it was ten percent mm. and the next day the fed came in and put 75 billion dollars into the market and like mm. 75 billion is a number that really we can't conceive mm. of of what it means <laughs> um but that happened in a day mm. and at the height of the post-financial crisis qe they were putting 85 billion in a month uh, and so everyone associates the money printing with COVID and the lockdown. And it was mm. like, Hey, they, they mm. had to print this money, but the imbalances were massive at that time before COVID was even an inkling on anybody other than maybe the world economic forums radar, mm. um, you know, planning their gaming, you know, mm. that they had in the fall of 20, 2019 around like a pandemic. But, but so that happened in September and then the oil war mm. between Russia and Saudis was in February. Mm. So there was this massive imbalance in the oil market too. That was before everyone anyone had ever heard the word COVID. Mm -hmm. And then the COVID lockdown happens and everyone associates the money printing with that. But we had these two massive markers of as the fed was trying to unwind the money printing in a massively leveraged system, they walked into a buzzsaw and the exact same thing is happening now. Like basically in my world, the marker of the last kind of beginning of the crisis, which was the repo markets was those bank failures. You know, people weren't really looking at the banks and then boom, like you, it's never going to be the same thing twice because the Fed's going to be paying attention to those markets a lot more closely that it's going to be something else that, that breaks and then they're always reactionary and will ultimately result in them printing money. So what do we think the next cover story is going to be? Because like, they, <laughs> you know, they always need some spin as to like explain why. Well, well let's back up a little bit because because sure, sure. uh, what, what you guys said, I think, is going to be a shock to a lot of people because what you're saying is the money printing didn't happen because of COVID. It happened because of some systemic um, deleveraging or something that that was happening prior to that from uh, 2017 to 2019. And essentially they use COVID as an excuse to bail all of those things out. So tell me the mechanics of that. What did they, what did they do to 
I don't know, like, uh, how did the repo market, I, I guess, get fixed as a result of COVID and so on? Parker, take it away. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what they effectively do <laughs> is, um, and they will call it different things, but mm-hmm. um, they will click a button on a computer screen and mm-hmm. put money in somebody's account mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't previously there so that that entity now has money to fund loans in the repo market to uh, simplify it. Uh, Basically everyone had pulled back from that market so that people, so the borrowers mm-hmm. that, that needed the money to be able to fund overnight transactions, which is a big part of what the repo market helps fund the the, the lenders in that market stepped away mm. as, as dollars got more and more scarce as, as liquidity got tighter and tighter. Mm. So what does the fed do? The fed basically says, and in this case, what they actually did was they basically said, we'll step in and lend Mm-hmm. or buy repo, basically like loans that were on repo mm-hmm. to basically inject liquidity in mm-hmm. to, to that specific market. Then fast forward into uh, March when, when quote the COVID crisis happened, but it was really just this, mm-hmm. you know, kind of reverberation of, of these massive imbalances that existed in the, in the, in the markets as the fed tried to unwind QE mm-hmm. was they, they started a formal QE program. And what they do there is they just, and, and, um, Either Powell, I think Bernanke, it's Powell or Bernanke, one of them like said carte blanche, like, how do you create money? It's like, well, we just, <laughs> we just click a button yep. on the computer screen uh-huh. and we credit the person's account with more money. <laughs> like they've said that literal thing. Like, this is not me paraphrasing. Yeah. It's like, he literally says, we click a button on the computer and the there account shows more money and there it is. I think that's the one where they also said like, we have an infinite amount of cash available. <laughs> yeah, like they say these things out loud. And and so what they did in March of 2020, which was they'll do again, uh-huh. is they clicked the button on the computer screen and bought the bond. So it's like people mm. are selling credit mm-hmm. because there's a liquidity crisis and there's not enough money to go around to service the debt. The way to reverse that is Fed clicks a button, creates new dollars out of thin air. They use those dollars to purchase the loans that nobody else will buy to stay. And that's what stabilizes interest rates. And if I remember right, they also bought up huge amounts of um, mortgages, which are also loans and yeah. propped up real estate markets. And so in, um, in, in a, uh, in a big way, I think they were responsible for the, the real estate craze of 2021. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. what happened there is just, and that's going to be for the history book. But that was a mania. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I crazy mania. I just housing prices doubled and then, <laughs> now they're they look like there's uh, they're about to crash but going going back to this like because i i really want to make sure that we get this right because i don't think this is a narrative that most people have heard um, including myself like my thought was okay here was covid here was an emergency everybody was shutting down so you know in order to help all of these people that were gone for three months from their business, you inject liquidity to help those people, uh, particularly around uh, people's employment. So, you know, you got PPP loans based on how many people that, based on uh, whether you kept people on in your company and so on. Like that, that's the narrative that I think most people are familiar with. What you're, you guys are saying seems rather different. Well, I th- think they, they did both. What I was uh-huh. explaining was that the root cause of the crisis uh-huh. that induced all the money printing was uh-huh. actually the credit market seizing. Uh-huh. And if you go back and look at it, they did do these, you know, PPP loans, uh-huh. but they also created programs uh-huh. to 
buy corporate debt. Um, they did, yeah. Municipal debt, um, mortgages, more treasuries that in general, it's like they're all related. So if people stop going to work uh-huh. and they stop paying their bills, like imagine what was happening was like there was a rent moratorium. Well, imagine somebody who owned a commercial piece of real estate and they had a piece of debt on it. And then the the person who's renting stops paying and then they can't pay their debt. And then that credit market collapse, you know, like, yeah. so like all these things are related, but the idea that the $5 trillion that was created out of thin air has to do with a pandemic. No, it had to do with a pandemic in a world where there was a massively leveraged financial system and that financial system was collapsing. And if you want to save the quote economy in their eyes, because the financial center financial sector is at the center. Okay. Everything has to go through the financial sector um, in, in the, in the feds economy. And the only way to resolve that is to create a lot more money. Otherwise the whole credit system collapse. And then you're not even gonna have businesses to have people to go back to. Mm. Um, so it wasn't necessarily an either or, but at the root cause in my view, it was look at the repo markets and the, they had put 500 billion into the system in six months, which was faster than they ever put money in the system before. And that was before there was a government lockdown. Mm. Yeah. Like a a simple way that I look at it is just to look at this economy as, um, you know, a a person who's hopelessly addicted to credit, Mm. right. To cheap, cheap credit and has like organized their whole life around that, like hand to mouth living, um, just assuming there'll always be a next loan around the corner. And so what was happening with, of course, there's always some external shock, like that's just life. It's just the way the world works. There's always going to be something unexpected. And so when that pandemic came around, what the economy wanted to do was go into withdrawals, right? Mm -hmm. It's basically saying like, I can't pay the debt. I got to, you know, there was so many businesses who actually, like I remember the Cheesecake Factory (laughs) here in Austin, like that was a company that was supposed to go bankrupt and mm. uh, because they literally stopped paying their their mortgage uh, sorry their uh, their rent and stuff like that mm. to the the malls that they were in but they got their PPP loan this and that <laughs> like they were rescued and so this this kind of um hopelessly addicted economy can keep using and and mm. it was never allowed to actually restructure and go through all that creative destruction where a lot of consumer focused companies would go bankrupt and slowly we'd see a shift happened towards more basic services, which Mm. is ultimately people are going to have to do that. Like you Mm. can't keep buying digital widgets. If, if literally everybody is in debt on a net basis, like, you Mm. know, you, you got to go back to the basics. Um, and eventually it'll happen, but, but in a way the the fed and the government, they're trying to, you know, avoid the inevitable. Mm. Yeah. And I think Mm. that one of the important things there was that, um, people often look at the, at the COVID lockdown or the, Mm. the government lockdown but the, the point that Tur makes is that like an exogenous shock was inevitable. Mm. So everyone like that, that's what grabs people's attention. But the idea is if you have this extremely fragile system mm. and it's fragile because of the high degrees of leverage mm. that do not go away, um, that whether it was the COVID crisis, it would have been something else. Like basically mm. an exogenous shock is inevitable because of the fragility. Mm. Um, and you know, like it is, you know, like if there was a setup for oil to go negative, which there was (laughs) that started before the economic system was, was shut. 
Okay. Right. Um, and so then the question is, well, what created those massive imbalances and kind of like building a very fragile home on the coast, right? In a, uh -huh. you know, hurricane pattern, uh -huh. maybe there isn't one this year, but there's going to be one and that house is getting knocked down when it, when it comes well, to it. You bring up a good point. Let's talk about the oil for a second. Cause that, that's something I, I feel like I still don't understand. How do you get a negative thing? And I mean, the narrative that I have from the mainstream is no one was going anywhere. So oil wasn't being used. So it crashed in price and they produced too much and there was nowhere to put it. And therefore it went ne negative. That's what I, I've been hearing. What, like, it sounds like you guys maybe have a different interpretation of what happened. No, what I'm saying is um, that if you go back to like what mm -hmm happened in time sequence mm -hmm. leading up to the, the COVID mm -hmm. lockdown and crisis that everyone assesses as the, um, the marker for why they printed money mm -hmm. that it started with the repo market breaking mm -hmm. in September of 2019, the fed started reinjecting money. Then, mm -hmm. then if you Google articles mm -hmm. in February of 2020, so like at least in the United States, COVID did not start to become it, like people started to be aware of it maybe in February, but like there was no lockdown. So mm -hmm. there was no economic activity that mm -hmm. stopped because of it until March, mid-March that there's, you can find the articles where it's like Saudi, the Saudis and the Russians do not agree to cut output mm. in February. And that starts to cause the price of oil to come down. So I'm not, now there was something technical in this. I'm not incredibly conversant around of like, why oil actually went negative mm -hmm. in terms of like the storage space. And like, there were people who were speculating on it that couldn't actually take delivery. Mm -hmm. So this was a crazy market anomaly. The more fundamental signal though, that I'm just trying to make is that this imbalance that caused like oil to go from say 80 to 50 in a one month period was because there had been this massive imbalance where there was not demand and the supply exceeded it significantly. And all of that was before COVID. Mm. And there's massive economic consequences to a market as big as the oil market going from 80 to 50, you know, where it might've been like 80 to 40. The, 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 that was the fundamental move. The more technical one was one because of financial speculation, in my opinion. Yeah. And it reminds me of something that you often see in markets. When you look at charts like medium or long-term charts, oftentimes you'll see something happening, like some kind of, resistance level, uh, support level gets broken and you just feel like, oh, something shifted here just from a, you know, price technical point of view. And, um, and, and then later you see headlines talking about, for example, with Bitcoin, like the, oh, the price went down and they, they print headlines that try to explain what happened. Mm. Whereas oftentimes it's as boring as too many people went long leverage and they needed to be flushed out. And then whatever the little gust of wind is that like, you know, makes you, uh, makes your margin call be activated, then that's going to be the big headline. If, if that, that's in the best case, often I feel like they just make stuff up like, Oh, you know, so I, I feel like that's what, what Parker is also talking about is like, you have these setups just like, you know, when a forest, maybe that I don't, I, I don't know for sure uh, b by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, one example would be hypothetically there's an island, you know, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of, um, on one side of the island, there are a lot of like um, buildings with very dry materials and there's like a, a certain wind that goes in a certain direction for a long time and there haven't been forest fires in 50 years. 
and then all of a sudden there is a fire. Well, the explanation is like it was baked into the cake, like it yeah. was bound to happen at some point. And it's not something that just, you know, it's not an act of God that we all have to like, you know, be angry at. It's just something unfortunate that that uh, was likely bound to happen. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the title of your book, Gradually Then Suddenly. It's right, <laughs> sort of right. been building up for a very long time. And then it just sort of, you don't know what triggers it, but what you guys are saying is it was inevitable. Yeah. And like, there's a difference between saying that some shock to the system is inevitable, mm. as well as recognizing that because the system is as fragile as it is, mm. that the shocks to the system cause much larger fallouts than would otherwise happen mm -hmm. if not for this manufactured world of high leverage where nobody has savings and uh, to Tur's point, you know, in total, everyone's in debt far more than could be possible if money couldn't be printed out of thin air, mm -hmm. if this thing called the Fed didn't exist. So it's like not to confuse the fact that, yes, even in a, on a Bitcoin standard or a world of sound money, there are going to be exogenous shocks. The only question is, does society as you know it collapse because there's a storm or do you just live in an environment where there's a lot more redundancy, a lot more stability, um, a lot more strength and resilience such that when the storm comes, you kind of, mm -hmm. you know, take a hit and keep moving forward. In the Fed's world, it's the it's, it's like there's always going to be exogenous shocks, but the, the problem is the fragility created by the leverage wouldn't exist if not for the function of a central bank creating money and having created the dynamics where the leverage could exist in the way that it does in a very unnatural way. Yeah. And you can find historic examples like the, you know, compare the crash of 1929 with the one of 1907. Nobody mm. talks about that anymore. The panic mm. of 1907, but there were the same events, but in one case, 29, there was a lot more leverage in the system and you had a government who thought that they could be the knight in shining armor and try to rescue everyone. And they just made it, made a 10 year depression out of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and whereas 1907 was quickly forgotten because it was just a little bit of extra leverage that was washed out of the system. Some companies went bankrupt and that was it. So it, it, mm. it takes years to sort of build up that leverage. It takes years to deleverage, in other words, something like that. It, I don't think it would need to take years, but. Yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, the way I would describe what the Fed did was mm. it created excess leverage over decades. Mm. Um, and then it got to a point where there was so much leverage in the system that when an exogenous shock would happen, they couldn't just go back to the same playbook they did the 10 times before to provide a little bit of money that basically had gotten extended in the state that was so far detached from normalcy or anything that could be understood as rational in terms of the amount of leverage that, you know, it's just, you know, a domino was going to be set off. You know, they, they, they were pursuing the same policy of every time there was a hiccup in the economy from 1980 on provide a little bit of money. So rather than the system being able to like Tura's describing in 1907, rather than the, the overall economy being able to restructure and deleverage, it was give a little bit of money, prevent the deleveraging. Like let's keep uh -huh. moving forward. The next time it would happen. Okay. Provide a little bit more money. And then you get further and further away from the point of normalcy or sustainability or stability. And, um, then 2008 happens and you don't know where the bottom is uh, or you don't know where the equilibrium is because you've gotten so far away from 
um, anything that could be considered a normal state of leverage. Yeah, because you had a, you had a patient with a sore throat, and you've been prescribing heroin for that. Yeah, <laughs> heroin. Now all of a sudden he's going into withdrawals. I'm like, oh my god, we got to save him. Like, but like, we've never administered the high the a dose this high. It's like, well, let's try it anyway. Well, he's gonna die if we don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, so right now we're sort of in a deleveraging environment, mm. right? The high interest rates naturally mean that there's monetary contraction. And we're, we're seeing sort of weird behaviors in the market. We have an inverted yield curve right now, right? Where uh, long-term interest rates are lower than the short term. What's going on? What, why, why is this happening? And how is this indicative of like sort of the reality that you guys are talking about? You want to take this one? Sure. I mean, at least the, the inverted yield curve, I think, is, is very rational. It just means that, um, you know, ultimately, if you buy a bond, you're, you're lending money to the government or whoever the issuer of the bond is, usually the government. So if you buy a 10-year bond, basically, you're trusting the government to pay you back over, you know, a series of 10 years. Uh, and what you take into account is not only like, well, are they going to be able to pay me back, but also what are what is the value of that money going to be in the future, right? If, mm. if they pay me in year eight, year nine, year 10, what is the actual value of that going to be? And so it's much easier to predict or have some kind of confidence that whatever debt gets paid back within a year, which is a one-year bond, is going to be, you know, worth more. And, and, mm. and also that... that um, um, yeah, and, and also, of course, what you take into account is what all the other actors in the market might be thinking. And so mm. if you think that, because um, there are existing holders of long-term bonds who might uh. be selling, right? And mm. if they sell into the market, they can push up the interest rates on those long-dated bonds um, uh, further, and then the value of your existing bonds goes down uh, mm. quite a bit. So whenever you see rising interest rates of bonds, think bond crash. Like that's mm. what's happening. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if Parker has a different take, but but that's how I've been reading that uh, so far. Yeah, I think from a technical perspective, I agree with everything Tur said. I think the the maybe thing I would add is all those interest rates that exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't know exactly where it is. If like the two years at four and a half percent and the ten years at four percent, mm -hmm. but they're all manipulated. Mm. Right. They're like to, to a certain extent, anybody that's in either of those markets is buying with the expectation that the fed's coming back in mm. to buy their bonds, to force the asset prices up and the rates down. Mm. And that, you know, it is a, um, market anomaly. If it were a free market to say mm. like, in general, if you're going to lend someone your money for a longer period of time, you would expect to receive a higher rate of interest or to forego your own consumption. Um, but in the Fed's world, because they control interest rates by the supply of money, the more consequential fundamental is, imagine lending money to somebody. Mm -hmm. Like think about buying a buying $100,000 worth of treasuries mm. and they're 10 years and you're going to get 4% back mm. a year mm -hmm. that um, what if the dollar lost 90% of its value against Bitcoin? What was mm. your yield? Very you know, <laughs> and yeah, like, like, so the, the market is existing on either side, whether it's the short end of the treasury curve mm -hmm. or the long end of the treasury curve in this manipulated dollar state of there being quote, a lender of last resort that is not capitalized. that just makes money out of thin air as the world's figuring out there's a form of money that can't be printed. And so like the opportunity cost is like, Hey, I'm going to take 4% on a 10 year note in terms of a treasury. But like, 
I don't actually get the principal back on that for 10 years and a lot of bad things can happen. Mm. And um, dollar inflation is what it is, but but ultimately what becomes the standard of value is Bitcoin. So it becomes, well, if I can't, if I can't get that money back for 10 years, how much Bitcoin do I forego? Or how much does the dollar lose in value between now and then till I get my principal back? Now you can ultimately go into the free market and sell your treasury, but you better do that before everybody else figures out the equation. Well, so all, all of your arguments are basically then that long-term more risk. So shouldn't the interest rate then be higher on the long end? Instead, that, of the I mean, that is what people uh -huh. expect. And that's, that's why people talk about this being a inverted yield uh -huh. curve. What I'm saying is that would be in a, in a free market. Uh -huh. This is not a free market. I see. You know, yeah. because, um, the, they expect the fed to come in, which the fed will come in to buy these bonds. Mm. Um, and the actual asset price of the 10 year will come down mm. or go up more to bring in. It has to basically go up more to bring interest rates down more because it's amortized over uh -huh. 10 years rather than say two years. Mm. So like the, the fundamental answer is correct. Yes. The interest uh -huh. rate should be higher for uh -huh. a longer duration. If the fed didn't exist and there wasn't this expectation in the market that, they weren't going to come in and buy a bunch of bonds. Uh -huh. Likely we would see a different or not likely we'd see a different in interest rate complex. Yeah. I need to think about it more. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. What you're saying. Well, so mm -hmm. one thing that I've heard on this inverted yield curve thing is that the treasury is the one that issues these treasuries. Right. And what I've heard is that they're, they're selling all of them short dated instead of long dated. So, there isn't as much supply of the long dated, uh, you know, 30 year or 10 year or 20, 15 year or whatever, um, treasuries on the market. So people would buy them, uh, at, at like a higher interest rate, but the supply is so low that, you know, whatever demand there is, it's, it's, it's sort of like manipulated that way rather than it's, it's like these, uh, these shit coins when they start off their initial ICO with a very small supply, mm -hmm. they can like jack up the price. Is yeah. that what you were saying? Like, yeah, yeah. So, something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, on like, the long end, basically. Yeah. But think about, I, I don't know what the actual dynamics yeah. are, but um, there's something like 30 trillion of mm -hmm. government debt that whenever someone's saying like, there's not a lot of supply, <laughs> it's probably, you know, in the, in the five to 10 trillion range, uh -huh. you know? And so, it's like one, just noting that in terms uh -huh. of like the relativity of like, there's massive amounts of long dated U S treasury, uh -huh. like in quantities that the human brain cannot conceive of what they <laughs> represent in human time. Uh, and that will never be repaid. Now, when the feds increasing interest rates, the, the borrower who's insolvent, uh, -huh. uh as are the people that are lending have an interest to borrow for shorter periods of time because the government's hoping when the, you know, I don't want to lock into 4% over 10 years. Uh -huh. If the fed's going to reduce interest rates to zero in six months. Uh -huh. And so there is that expectation, right? So they're but, selling more short term so they don't have to pay as much interest. Because with the uh -huh. expectation that interest uh -huh. rates are going to have to come down and they'd rather not be locked into higher interest rates for longer periods of time. Right. Um, and I would just, you know, kind of throw out there that, um, you know, think about somebody going bankrupt mm. that, uh, if you, if, if you're, you know, um, friend that's chronically behind on his bills came to you and said, Hey, can you give me a loan? 
for 10 years, <laughs> you'd be like, Hey, how about three months? <laughs> you know, how about you pay me back in three months? Uh -huh. So it's like when you get in this, you know, so there's a lot of things, but it is, it is logical that the, the insolvent entity that has interest payments over a trillion dollars uh -huh. um, would rather borrow for a short period of time if they expected interest rates to come down so that they didn't lock in to higher interest rates over a long period of time. Yeah. But if you, if you owned long dated bonds and the fed came in and was like, we're slashing interest rates again, wouldn't you benefit to a greater extent than if you owned shorter dated bonds? I'm talking about the fed or the treasury as the issuer. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, but I'm just thinking about like just from a like a rational investor point of view, like you know, is it possible that that's that's the play um you know of investors who do buy the long dated bonds that they're like, well, I'm willing to kind of go with, go along with the crazy in in the sense that 4% on a 10-year bond is ridiculous, but I'm I'm willing to go along with it because I think in the short term the Fed is going to come in, slash interest rates, and the the effect on on my bonds spiking up, like being more valuable, is going to be greater in the long dated bonds than in the short dated bonds. Oh, so they're anticipating rate cuts, and that that would cause the uh, the interest rate cut would cause the bond price to go higher. I'm like I'm like trying to think of think this uh -huh. through in real time, so I, uh -huh. I don't know if that's the case. I'm just like, yeah, wondering. and I'm also assuming that what you're mm. saying is uh -huh. is correct, but that generally, if you expected uh -huh. your interest rate to go down, that you wouldn't want to borrow as a borrower uh -huh. at a longer duration. You'd rather pay the higher rate for a shorter period of time, and then when interest rates are down, then refi at a lower rate, essentially. Yeah, yeah. The so, government is giving them the, themselves like, that option. I ultimately yeah. think it's like. It's all noise. <laughs> the government, the United States government has 30 trillion in debt. It's never getting paid back. The only way it gets paid back is to print more money. Like mm -hmm. the government themselves, like if, if not another dollar was printed, the U.S. government gets exposed as the most insolvent entity that exists. <laughs> yeah, and if you, if you align your investments based on the hypothesis that the government is going to keep printing money, you are aligned with the interests of the government because it's not in their interest to default. Um, just like what we saw with Argentina, like usually what happened in 2001 was like an extreme anomaly. Like usually they just keep printing until they hit a wall. Um, and the wall means, you know, kind of hyperinflation. So mm. I just feel emboldened that like, Yes, you know, we can have some scare scenarios where temporarily like, ooh, is there going to be a, you know, a market correction or like our, our, our ass is going to go down. It's like basically like, yeah, you're speculating on a dollar rally. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, but it might not happen. Like we might just be flat on the dollar or um, we could have a decoupling where certain assets are going to go down indeed and others are going to just rally through the roof like we get that stagflation like that's that confusing concept of the 1970s where the best investments were gold um short dated bonds and uh i think maybe utilities or something like and then all the I, rest i think went they down. had an inverted yield curve somewhere around there yeah, too. I, yeah i believe so yeah like long dated bonds were terrible in the 70s and short dated bonds did great um mm -hmm. so I, it is that weird period again like i believe at least that this is stagflation so people are anticipating yeah, I, rate I mean, cuts look, <laughs> i think that there's it's kind of it's hard to look at the past because we're in this like uh -huh. um territory where the world has never been, you uh -huh. know, both 
the degree of insolvency mm. of all these sovereigns mm-hmm. at the same time that a new form of money is emerging that provides a viable alternative mm. that didn't exist in the seventies. Um, we were in the process of, of, um, diverting away from sound money, not uh-huh. on the precipice of adopting, mm. you know, kind of, or, or going the, the other way. And that, um, I think in the simplistic Keynesian academic Paul Krugman, Janet Yellen, Stephanie Kelton worldview, it's I raise interest rates to reduce inflation. Mm. Like that's what they're trying to do. But I have this kind of like mental framework of high interest rates do not make oil more abundant or food more abundant. Mm. And oil and food are the two goods that require everything else to be produced. Mm. Um, and so while the, the Keynesian academics look at the economy as, well, if I destroy demand for oil and there's all the supply, <laughs> it's going to make the price of oil less, which then it's going to bring everything down. Uh-huh. Well, what happens in reality is like they, everything that is an in-place asset, like a home, a car, or something that has a piece of debt on it, even at an asset price like a company, they can cause the the prices of real estate to come down because they're supported by this high, the values are supported by this highly leveraged system. But the second they start destroying demand for oil, mm. supply of oil gets destroyed. Mm. Basically, as a marginal barrel of demand comes offline, the highest cost producer mm. can no longer supply the barrel of oil. So it's actually supply and demand come down together and then there is ultimate scarcity. There's less absolute Mm. volume of things like oil, gas, power, food, the things you need to produce with human time Mm. on a marginal basis, but there's still an outsized number of dollars as those goods become more scarce, which causes two things to happen at once. And I, and I don't know if this is technically what stagflation is, but it's like, in place assets are going are deflating because they're tied to the le- the leverage system, but the goods that are produced on a recurring basis that need to be delivered just in time, where there's not a ton of inventory, uh, they become more expensive. So like right now, we're seeing the value of real estate come down at the same time we're selling the price of gasoline at the pump go up and food not get any less expensive, mm. and and the food and the gas have to be produced and delivered because one's perishable. One has a supply chain that needs to have the, the, the pump constantly going. Um, the value of real estate is not the same. Mm-hmm. So that I think we're seeing these two things diverge. And for very logical reasons, if you pay attention for, you know, one thing has to be produced tomorrow to be delivered, that thing's getting more expensive. Something's already been produced and has a, a massive amount of debt on it. And there's fewer dollars circulating. So the price of that thing that already exists is going down. Yeah, that's my understanding of it. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on stagflation, but but roughly speaking, it's like the stuff that you want mm. uh, goes down in price or is flat and the stuff that you need is going up. Right? <laughs> and so the basics uh, is going. And so basically it means a stagnating economy combined with inflation. Yeah. Yeah. It it seems like Mm -hmm. the reverse of when they print money, right? When they add money into the economy, it's these hard assets that tend to go up in price like real estate uh, and, you know, stock prices and things like that. 
Uh, but when when there's monetary contraction, the reverse happens, where it's it's the necessary goods that go up in price and uh, the asset prices that come down. Right, and I think it's very logical. It's like they put uh-huh. money in the system, the assets that already exist have more dollars uh-huh. competing for it. Yeah, roughly the same amount of assets. The reverse is true. You take the dollars out of the system, same mm-hmm. amount of assets, fewer dollars, but those in-place assets are also competing with the things that you actually need to be produced on a, on a marginal basis. So it is very like logical. Mm. Um, and then the way that I would describe it is imagine you, you know, you buy a house for $500,000 and you have a a mortgage for Mm $400,000, but then imagine that that $500,000 house is only worth $350,000 because they've been taking the money out of the system you default on your mortgage, but then also the bank loses money, credit contracts, that actually causes there to be even less credit in the system, less money in the system, which creates, you know. Well, deleveraging is taking money out of the system. Right, right. but it, but it basically accelerates on itself mm. because they put the money back in the system to force the asset prices up so that the debt levels can be sustained. Otherwise, there's this, like, it's not just a, you know, steady unwind. It's basically a accelerating collapse because the asset prices are necessary to be able to support the debt levels. And as soon as everyone figures out that that's not the case anymore, everyone starts defaulting in mass. And though they put the money in the system, like the way I describe it to force the asset prices up so that the asset prices can start support the debt levels so that they can start to issue more debt because they can't issue more debt if the asset prices don't support the existing debt levels. I think what you described um, to me sounded like, yes, that's business as usual from the Keynesian point of view. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, the the market is sputtering. So like, yeah, we we pump more money in the system. Um, um, No, I'm not summarizing it well, but, but what I was trying to get at is that I think that politicians and and economists have been very myopic in the sense Mm -hmm. that they see what's right in front of them and what they what they see and want to see is consumer activity they want consumption Mm -hmm. they want people to book travels they want them to you know uh build a porch they want them to do all these activities because then then they see and and it's convenient for them because they love uh, to get more tax income and the more consumer activity there is, the more stuff you can tax. Uh, but what they're not seeing, which is what they're, because they're myopic is all that important activity of, uh, oil exploration of, 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 uh, developing, uh, mines to pull ore out of the ground, uh, just building core infrastructure, uh, for these basic, you know, uh, food and, 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 uh, commodities, and so what they've been doing over the years is like every time there is a, a slump in the economy, they've been injecting money, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have the, the uh, Cantillion effect where they want to inject money where they think is, is it's needed and they're myopic. So they're always focused on consumption. So they, they will make it easy for people to get money to get a house. And like, Mm. they really, they create the housing bubble and then they want to stimulate technology and the creation of web 2.0 companies. And so then you get Silicon Valley and you get that big Mm. tech bubble. And, uh, and I think what's happened is just, we're reaching a point where, um, the, the the there's there's almost like a lake of liquidity that's been created in the in in the area where all the consumption happens 
and there's uh there's a depression there's too little water in the whole commodity sector like if you look mm. at the commodity index compared to uh, where stocks are we had a we had a bear market for a long time in commodities like there's not been enough exploration like there's not been enough production of all these basic commodities and so we're going to see that even out like the fed that's the pushing on the string like they cannot stop that happening like there's mm. going to be a rebalancing and um and unfortunately, in their efforts to keep this imbalance in existence, they're destroying the money, right? <laughs> and so Bitcoin investment, like Bitcoiners and, and like, you know, as the Bitcoin pool grows in, in value, I think are going to be putting their investment dollars eventually and like not right away, but eventually to work in some of these basic sectors. And, and I don't think... Um, Bitcoiners and hard money savers are going to be investing in the next uh, Amazon or something. I think it's going to be much more about maybe buying property and developing uh, just just the more basic parts of the economy. I mean, in a way, we're we're going to be rescuing them or or you know revitalizing them. Yeah, or figuring out like what is really of va value, like what mm. people have to have mm. things like pipelines and telecom, and, right? Um, Data well, yeah. centers, I do think, are going to be part of that core infrastructure and you know, things like that. Yeah, there, yeah, there's a distinction that I think uh, Keynesian economists don't make, uh, which is, you know, for them, all spending is just spending, right? It doesn't matter if it's a consumer good or a capital good or anything else. Mm. For them, if you spend money, that's great because that's uh, part of the PQ equals whatever equation, <laughs> yes. the, the ridiculous... Like, yeah, the num uh, amount of rain that falls on the ground is the amount of rain that came down or something. Uh, but in a sense, the um, that that whole narrative is is what that mentality is what caused this sort of crisis we're in is, is I think what you guys are saying is. Yeah, yeah like allowing bean counters to print mm -hmm. money, like mm -hmm. gets you into a really bad situation. Yeah. I think that like, you know, wh where we're at, Today. That should be the quote to promote this podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> Don't let bean counters uh, print money. Print money. Yeah. Um, that like when you have these very academic people mm. thinking that they can just turn dials mm. on these incredibly complex systems with incredibly consequential things like money, mm -hmm. you know, that, um, that there's a part of it that's like naivety, but then there's another part of it that's kind of like trying to, to be godlike of like arrogance, maybe. I can, yeah, arrogance. I can control things. Like I have mm. better data. And if I just turn this one thing over here, but you don't realize that it's caused a knock on effect in places that you don't see mm. until several years later or that you couldn't see because they have um, not just unintended consequences, but impossible to know consequences. And so, um, yeah, I think that each time we go through one of these cycles on the kind of legacy financial system mm. is that the system actually gets more fragile and, and more precarious. And so I just looked at that analog of like where we're currently at is fed walking toward buzzsaw mm. and you know, they're on that part of the curve where they're going to walk into it. And I can't predict whether it's in a month or three months, we can look at history and kind of like the episodes of like six months later, it took two years, but you just know that that's inevitably coming and you have to prepare for that because it's going to create volatility and stability and survive all markets. Um, but that it's inevitable and they will come back in and have to print a lot more money. And like Tur said, it's like mm. the currency is a release valve or like they're doing it all of this at the consequence of destroying the money. 
Well, so I have a question for you guys, because you we are talking about sort of the fragility of the dollar and how all kinds of things are breaking. You have, you know, the Fed doing all kinds of stuff, the uh, government just running up incredible amounts of debt. Yet at the same time, we're seeing the dollar strengthen, right? We're, we're seeing what the yen is at right now, like 145 to a dollar or something like that. Um, like just the dollar is doing pretty well relatively speaking relatively speaking but mm -hmm. like go ask anybody mm -hmm. who's living in america mm -hmm. that is paying for food and gas and seeing their bank account dwindle to zero where they can basically survive so it's like mm -hmm. it's like if the dollar is versus real goods and services which is what matters mm -hmm. if your money is losing its value to real goods and services that money is failing mm -hmm. it's, well i, it's I, I agree but, but but i was I, saying I, all that means is that the other currency is doing worse, you know? So like if you're the, if you're the best of a bad lot, it doesn't make you good. With the, in the words of Chris Anthony, the dollar ain't shit. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's still kind of crazy to me. Cause I mean, is the dollar still the best despite it? Well, well, but consider, uh, yeah. consider that in, in an environment that's extremely volatile and unpredictable, there is value to liquidity, like mm -hmm. optionality. And that's still what the dollar represents to a very large part of the world is that optionality, like on a month to month basis, like between here and 30 days from now, you can pretty much rest easy that, yeah, the dollar is not going to go down by 20%. And meanwhile, you have all that optionality. And so if you're reshuffling, if you're, you're, you're repositioning yourself, maybe you're selling a house, whatever you're doing, you know, a, a lot of that, those transactions are going to intersect with the dollar. And additionally, we're seeing currency pairs like, um, what is it now? The, the, the Australian dollar, uh, the yen, like all these like traditionally relatively safe currencies mm -hmm. are breaking down. Mm. They're, they're in terrible, terrible shape. The Euro, like I'm afraid that the European banks are going to roll over next, you know, like mm. the, the Euro has been, you know, and that's the problem we've seen it in the world of, you know, if you've been in Bitcoin, you had the privilege of seeing all these shit coins and seeing what happens when, once the trust is a little bit lost, it tends to go down real fast. Like right? DMB right now. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, so that's the, that's kind of the scenario in, in the world at large with the fiat currencies. Mm -hmm. And so then the dollar is still the biggest elephant in the room. And so you kind of go with that for now, at least that's my take. Yeah, I know. I mean, I agree with it. I think that like, you know, I think the most important thing is though that there there is a psyop under or not this is maybe not the most important thing, but it will speak to the most important thing. There's a psyop going around that like tries to send a signal like the dollar's not as bad as that. Uh -huh. So like we're good, folks, like calm down. And like what Term mentioned earlier, disinflation, like inflation's going down. And that's all a psyop because anybody that is operating the real world knows that inflation isn't going down. Like if you live in a house and your real estate is going down in value, but you don't need to sell your house, but the things that you need to buy each day and at the grocery store are getting more expensive, inflation is not going down, mm. right? But they are psyoping like, hey, inflation's going down. Everyone just chill, mm. right? There was this funny, not funny because it's consequential, but like uh, Jason Calcanis, who's one of these like, most out of touch Silicon Valley <laughs> technocrats, you know, had uh, like put a tweet out in early mm -hmm. uh, August that was like along the lines of like all these people that are complaining about the dollar inflation 
don't know how good they have it. Uh-huh. And it's like one, tell that to somebody that is struggling to put food on their table or, uh-huh. you know, like filling their gas tank up to get to work because that's happening all over the country. Mm. But then like two weeks later, he tweeted, I was like, holy shit, I just went to the grocery store. Like groceries are out of control, <laughs> you know? And so I, I just think that it's like, Anytime somebody tries to paint a picture like inflation is not going up is mm-hmm. like trying to, um, well, I won't say the, you know, um, claim that, it, you know, do something and claim that, that, that it's raining. Yeah. Yeah. And I like recently I heard on the public radio here, like um, they were saying like, oh, yeah, gasoline prices are, are going up. But what people don't realize is that um, gasoline is only 4% of the consumer price index. Yeah. (laughs) Tell that to like, you know, ever any, any, you know, blue coat worker or whoever needs to like gasoline to drive to work or something like that's the car before the horse. That's saying like, Oh, but don't forget the propaganda says they should only account for 4% of your expenses. So yeah, I agree. Like, you know, when they say disinflation, it's just, you know, the, it's just Fed speak for, for saying like, yes, it's still going up, albeit a little more slowly. Yeah. The other thing mm. to remember too, is like all, the, whenever they quote these numbers, uh-huh. it's always compounded against the prior year, uh-huh. you know? So like, Hey, if mm-hmm. in July of 2022 prices were up 9% uh-huh. and then in 2023, they're up another 3% uh-huh. that 12 plus percent compounded of your money was destroyed over two years. Uh-huh. So like the, the, like these ideas of like, well, inflation's going down, but it's like, well, now let's go back to 2020. <laughs> where are price levels today versus where they were 2020? Cause this is a cumulative world. No, no, yeah. no. We should uncork the champagne because the tumor has only grown by 3%. <laughs> yeah. <so>. yeah. <laughs> and, and the 9% growth of the prior does, year is still there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter that it was already large enough to bank with you as it was. It's, it's now just a little bit worse. Yeah. Well, so uh, let, let's go back to, I think, something that you guys mentioned very early on, which is the banking crisis, right? Uh, and this, uh, I think if, if, uh, if I understand correctly, what happened was they bought a lot of treasuries when the interest rates were very low and interest rates have gone up, which means that their bonds are worth less. So now, now they're kind of in a pickle unless they hold those uh, treasuries to maturity and they don't have liquidity in the meantime, something like that. Um, and of course, like uh, they, they can't afford to pay out larger interest rates to attract more capital. So they're kind of in this weird position. Um, and this is, uh, I guess, what, what caused the banks to shut down. I, why, why isn't this happening more? And what, what's, what's going on? Like, why are people keeping money in banks at this point? Well, that's, I mean, my very limited mm-hmm. experience was uh, just one conversation I remember from Bitcoin Miami talking to um, a guy who was um, pretty high up in a, in a regional bank. I forget mm-hmm. which state it was. I think, uh, oh, it was uh, Madison. So that's, um, where's that again? Uh, Wisconsin? Wisconsin? Yeah, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so he was saying that exactly the the, mm-hmm. the issue that you're talking about is literally being discussed among all the regional banks is like, like why are people using us anymore? Like mm-hmm. there is higher risk, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we, we, we suffer more greatly if there's a bank run, it's, we're a lot more vulnerable to that. Uh, a lot of our old business isn't there anymore. Like the mm-hmm. mortgage stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our asset is 
our assets are balance sheet is bloated with these mm -hmm. mortgages that are really dangerous now. We don't write a lot of new loans. Uh, what about holding people's assets? Well, people don't park dollars with us anymore. And so he said uh, in a survey, I believe it was 160 regional banks in the US indicated that yes, they're very interested to move into managing crypto balances because then they <laughs> could retain some of those assets to then write out loans against or whatever they oh. want to do. Um, and, and legally speaking, they can't do that yet. Um, mm. so, but, but it's kind of, I think it speaks to the dire situation of these uh, small time banks mm. Mm, that they're thinking of that as like of all things <laughs> to, to rescue them. Yeah. And I also mm. think that, um, I don't think that we have to be able to explain everything about human psychology, uh -huh. which is like, what I mean by that is the same question could have been asked of, uh, of Bear Stearns uh -huh. and Lehman Brothers. You know, when Bear Stearns failed, uh -huh. Lehman Brothers was almost certainly at the same time insolvent. Uh -huh. Like, why didn't it fail? Uh -huh. You know, why didn't it just go... Bear Stearns, Lehman, Washington Mutual, Goldman, like why didn't mm. they all just happen in a matter of days? Mm. And that um, when everybody, you know, panics and hits the exit, mm. like why did they all panic at the same time? And then people get reassured that things are okay. Why'd they get reassured? They, they printed a lot of money and they said, hey, the Fed's in control. And there, there's some irrationality to that of like, well, if they were in control, why did Mm -hmm. why did a couple $200 billion banks evaporate functionally overnight? Right. Mm. Um, but the point is that the, the real underlying signal is that it hasn't gone away. Mm. So to think that the same issues that cause those banks to fail will not, are not in the active process mm. of causing others to fail and that there's not going to be another wave, I think ignores the fundamentals and just pays attention to the psyop that's like, Hey, there's a soft landing, mm. there's disinflation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I like, it's like trying to explain exactly why the next bank failure didn't happen the next two days would like ignore the, you know, kind of human pattern of like, well, you know, people had their exit psychologically at the same time. And just because it's happening underneath the surface doesn't mean it's not still happening. And there's going to be another shoe to drop when things get tighter. Maybe it's the real estate market continuing to contract, or maybe it's, you know, something like that massive Chinese real estate company failing, causing people to be fearful again. You, you don't know, but nothing can escape the actual fundamentals, dollars and cents of massive leverage, less and less liquidity and, you know, a next wave being set off. Yes. It's tempting to spec. I've been thinking about like maybe Japan could be the the, the canary mm -hmm. in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. it just like psychologically, like if we have an advanced Western economy that goes through a real inflationary crisis, you know, where they have to, who knows, like devalue whatever it is. I think that could really set off alarm bells and people like, oh, this is not business as usual. Like this is not, oh, let's just paper it over and there's another bailout. Because um, people have this like mental dissonance where they look at like countries like Turkey and Argentina and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's them. Right. That's not <laughs> us. As if the system is you know, inherently different. It's not, it's just a matter of gradation and, and how far along they are. So, yeah. And also I have been looking at Europe because, or I, I want to look at it more actually, but because historically Europe is just less 
united is less mm. uh, glued together has more di- discord within you know there's the northern countries who want to uh, be more conservative and then the southern ones they really just want to keep spending mm-hmm. like uh, like Greece and and Spain and such and so every time it's you know the narrative is like oh everything's going wrong in the US and then we see like giant crises happening <laughs> in Europe uh, like 2011-12 so i've been i've been kind of like i think a lot of the attention has been focused on the US but i think there's some shoes that really could drop in um you know in Europe like Deutsche Bank for example is is terrible shape and there's there's other examples and and countries of course too um yeah. And, and, yeah, and there's and also a war going on in that continent. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you would think that would yeah. affect things. Yeah, yeah and, and Brent, I don't know if you saw, but the the European oil price they have they have their own oil price is. Uh, I'm I'm not saying it's breaking out, but it's it's broken above uh, resistance. So th- there is a real chance that it could break up again, which would just really cause another energy crisis down there. Yeah, and I think like just closing out, you know, kind of the loop of like, and it's also part of the inspiration behind the mm-hmm. gradual and suddenly it was Hemings way process of describing how people go bankrupt. It's like Silicon Valley became insolvent was some time long before everybody else figured it out. Mm. So the same thing, it's like, there's probably a bank that's, you know, clearly insolvent right now. And the people that have deposits there just don't know about it. Mm. And whenever they figure it out, the next wave of bank failures happens, right? Like mm. where like the, the actual instance or like moment that that bank has more liabilities and assets and it becomes clear is sometime before when the panic sets in and the majority of people figure out about it. It's like, Hey, or like one analogy I like to use is like whenever a, a public company provides earnings, 45 days after a quarter or 60 days after an annual a year mm-hmm. ends the market's responding to lagging information, mm-hmm. right? Like it sells off on, on like the news that the company did fewer sales than they were expecting, but that actually happened in the past. Mm-hmm. They're just learning about it in the present. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true. Like some event will happen and very few number of people will hear about, they'll start acting. So there's like an information propagation time that everything is delayed by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about Margin Call, right? The movie Margin Call, it's Jeremy Irons. It's just such a brilliant movie. That's what I'm imagining when I hear Parker talk about these events where like internally they're like, holy shit, like this is, we're basically going off the rails. We need to, I don't know, come out guns blazing or just pretend, try to extend and pretend. I think that, you know, margin call the movie is happening, you know, in various boardrooms and, uh, and, and we'll find out about it at some point, just like FTX collapsed was insolvent way, way before we all found out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And maybe similar with Binance. Who Same knows? with prime trust. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Like, right. like that, mm-hmm court order, you know, kind of alleged that they were probably insolvent as, you know, as, um, as early as December, 2021, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that doesn't know for sure when it happened. Same thing with Celsius. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. And then you have to take into account that some of the way these numbers are calculated is also manipulatable. So you can mark to market and basically lie in your reporting and thereby extend, keep up the charade for, you know, longer than a couple quarters. Yep. Well, so let's talk about sort of the 
end game of all this because I, I think what you, you guys are saying. You want to make saying, this like a 12-hour podcast? <laughs> we could. We could. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not Lex Friedman, though. Um, but imagine that you uh, that you do get a lot of these bank failures, right? And that that's something that I think you guys are both saying is probably on the docket, right? Like there, there's a buzzsaw coming and some of these banks are not going to survive. So the conspiracy theorist in me thinks that that's like the perfect setup for a CBDC because you could get rid of all these banks and make the central bank everyone's bank. You have the technology. Everyone has an account with the mm. central bank instead of your regional bank, all of which are insolvent anyway. And now you get a surveillance state and, you know, they, they may be cast it as some form of compassion. You know, the poorest people don't have checking accounts and now they're going to get one through government intervention and you're going to do it through a CBDC branded some other way. But that, that seems to me the end game of this and why they're not panicking over these bank failures. It seems like they, they're almost the, the deep state seems to almost be cheering it on, which is a little bit weird. What do you guys think? What do you think? Bro? Man, just looking at Jerome Powell speak, mm. Janet Yellen speak, like these do not come across as confident people. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think to say that I, I believe that people in the Fed are scared shitless and I believe mm. people at Treasury are scared shitless, mm. um, that they don't have all the answers, that there's a scenario where the emperor has no clothes and with passing days it becomes more obvious and they they need people to have confidence in them. Um, and so I, I don't think that you're necessarily wrong that there isn't somebody sitting there saying, Hey, this would be a lot easier to plug all the holes in the leaky ship. If we had a CBDC, mm -hmm. right. Um, there are certainly people who are thinking that now I will reinforce, even though that a lot of these things that these people do is crazy, um, that, you know, they, they still have to follow the law. They just bend it in ways from time to time where like, as an example, when the fed printed $5 trillion in the 2020 to 2022 period, really 2019, technically the fed cannot lend directly to corporate entities. Mm -hmm. So they had to create a, without changing the charter, which has to be approved by Congress they figured out a route around where basically they financed the treasury, the treasury pushed, put the equity in that the fed gave them. And then, <laughs> and then the fed lent to the treasury 90%. Mm -hmm. So, and then the treasury was the, the one who was buying the equity in the, in the corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. So that was an example where like the fed wanted to just go buy corporate bonds, but they needed to create a legal structure that probably wouldn't hold up in court, mm -hmm. but that they could at least point to and say, we 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 operated within our charter even if even if common sense might say we bent the rules and <laughs> possibly even broke them you know at least there's some you know red tape that said we did it right the the context of the cbdc basically taking out the banks and lending directly mm. problem is that is like that becomes more overt like we well, we actually have to change the charter so at the same time that there's people out with pitchforks with inflation saying this entity is causing all these problems. I think it would be very hard, at least in the United States to, to, to get that done. Not to say that I think the conspiracy theory and theorist in you is right that like somewhere Paul Krugman 
is sitting there or a Stephanie Kelton, these monetarist Keynesian, mm-hmm. you know, modern monetary theorists saying this would be a lot easier. I think the, the bottom line though is, and it's the problem that the Fed has today, they're always reactive. So imagine like a ship break, like breaking at the seams. Mm-hmm. You can put the money in but you can't make it go where you need it to, to go for it. You can, you basically have one shot. Uh-huh. Now you can take more shots, but once you put the money in the system, you can't make it go where you need it to. You can only do that once and you can do it over and over by printing more money, but it's still, you, you can't like, once it's in the system, you can't inject it, you know, mm-hmm. in different parts. And so, um, a CBDC would have the same problem as a, the current construct. And so I think that it's like one for legal reasons, they probably can't do it, at least not here in the United States. Two, it would suffer from the same fundamental problem of like you can put money in the ship, but you can't make it go where you want to go once it's there once. And in this instance, the banks, the banks and the Fed are mutually assured destruction. If the banks become at odds with the Fed, then they both die faster than if they're cooperating with each other because their cooperation with each other, like the Fed needs the banks to continue its charade and the banks need the Fed for the same reason. So I think it's like mutually assured destruction if the if the Fed becomes competitive to the JP Morgans of the world or the other mega banks. Like mm, if- I agree, yeah. I don't think they can they can handle it alone. Uh and I agree with what you said about that, you know, central banks are, are panicking and they kind of don't know what they're doing. There, there's this one quote, which to me was one of the most telling of the last few years. Kristalina uh, Georgieva, she's like um, really high up in the IMF and she was on a panel with um, uh, Christine Lagarde. And um, she literally said that like, you know, what central bankers the way they pursue their policy is a bit like eight-year-olds playing soccer. Like they, you know, there's like the ball is there and they just all run for the ball and there's just complete chaos basically. <laughs> um, and, and the ball, the symbol there is like whatever event happens to be in the news is like mm. that. That they're, So they're very much trying to manage perception uh, much more than having a, a big picture plan. Um, I do think there is kind of an evolution that is very likely Uh which you don't have to be just a conspiracy theorist. You can just look at um, policy that was produced by um, the FSB, Financial Stability Board, and the the Bank for International Settlements going back to 2011, where they were like, okay, we had this financial crisis. Clearly, a lot of banks are very, you know, not up to snuff with their finances. And they were basically admitting, like, this is going to happen again. Like, we're going to have more of these crises. So we need to figure out which banks we're going to bail out and which banks are going to get the bail in, which is Mm -hmm. basically saying all the depositors get a haircut, just like Cyprus style. (laughs) And um, we're not going to push in money from outside to rescue them. We're just going to say there's only so much money. So there you go. 30 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. And, and the, the, the the shareholders lose, lose all the value. So then they had to figure out how to, how to make that distinction. They came up with with this concept called, um, Systemically important financial institution, S I F I, sci fi, and then also G sci fi, globally systemically important financial institutions. So you can actually look up that list. Like it's just literally a list of banks and they update it every now and then. And um, that's my best bet is like, you know, those 
those banks and it's very U- U.S. heavy, you know, mm-hmm. United States heavy, uh, are likely going to be the banks that going to keep existing, and a lot of the other banks can fall away. And so, if we're going to go into, you know, more pushing towards something like a, a, a CBDC, which to me is just I don't know, it's just more propaganda than anything. Because what are you going to put it on a blockchain? Like it doesn't really matter. Uh, I do think they 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 might want to control it more have more quote unquote transparency. But so yeah, rather than the Fed ever interacting with consumers directly, like they can't do that. They don't have the technical ability. They don't have <laughs> they they need a marketing arm. They need, you know, they need different banks to compete with each other. So I don't know. I can see a future where we just have less banks, right? Mm. Where you kind of we have like a kind of what Marx envisioned, right? A central centralized system with a few banks that are practically owned by the government. And um yeah, I mean, that would be Krugman's wet dream, but it would also be a, a, just an inflationary environment where pretty much everyone would just want to own Bitcoin and, and just not deal with that stuff. Well, so I'm reminded of uh, of what happened with the 2008 crisis because mm. essentially that's what brought in Obamacare, right? They the the quote back then was, don't ever let a crisis go to waste. They used the crisis to essentially push through an agenda item that um, their party has been wanting for something like 50 years at that point. Uh, And it seems like uh, if you do have a banking crisis, this is one of those crises that you can't afford to let go waste if you are in power. And they, (laughs) they, they seem to be going in that direction. And, you know, I, I like, I don't think the government is very good at doing healthcare either, but you know they they've managed to sort of co-opt a lot of private health insurers into their orbit somehow through legislation and essentially made them part of the bureaucratic state. Seems like they're halfway there with banks already. I mean, like, is is that so far from a CBDC? Yeah, I mean, I think that the. Um, the Fed is owned by the banks, right? It's mm. like federally chartered and there's, you know, government approvals for certain appointments. And so mm. it's a quasi, even though it is technically a private institution, it's quasi public, mm. but the, um, the large financial institutions are the primary stakeholders, mm. right? JP Morgan, mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. So, um, I think that's also one of the reasons why what Tur was saying was that like they have this system, they already exert a lot of control and power through it mm. to think that the continued path, mm. you know, incremental path down be- is not the more path of least resistance and the one that allows their system to stay in place is the more lo- like mm. the thing that is most logical probably happens. Mm. So it's like, yes, they do functionally get the outcomes and control that they want. And if they can cons- can continue to consolidate, they do that, you know, the the private sector becomes to look more and more like a publicly controlled sector, the fewer and fewer entities there are, but it is also the most logical. It's already been happening. It's the most logical thing to continue to happen based on the structure of the system. So, um, you know, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and, you know, extensions of JP Morgan extensions of the fed, which is an extension of the state. So mm. yes, like the, the, this, the banking system hasn't been technically nationalized, but I think functionally the 
the federal government has sufficient control over it that in times of great crisis, the two can be looked at as you know unified, at least in purpose. Well, so let's let's talk about sort of the more practical um, prepping, if you will, uh, for for those of the uh, audience that are that are listening or watching. What what would you suggest to prepare for sort of like the coming buzzsaw, as you put it? Uh, what what do you do? I mean, I guess you could buy Bitcoin, but certainly there are other sort of knock on effects that you could probably logically reason out. What what are some of those things? It's hard. It's really hard because um, you know. I've I've just always tried to look at places like I said like Latin America and places like that is like how do people deal with the situation mm -hmm. there and what you want when that comes that you know storm or wildfire whatever you want to call it is optionality like that mm -hmm. is really the thing that's so valuable because um, you don't know exactly how it plays out all right mm -hmm. you don't know what what were which bubble pops first and then you know, it was similar to the mania of 2021 it's like how do you position for that uh <laughs> you know should you have bought a rolex beforehand you didn't know that it was going to be a rolex that was going to mm -hmm. so i think similarly when things melt down you can't necessarily know when the bottom comes and in what asset or or also maybe even like where to live like you know mm. is is your neighborhood going to be the one that turns into a crime ridden zone or is is yours going to be the one maybe you know a proxy is like if you live where the doctors and the lawyers live like maybe that's going to kind of still you know, generally speaking for real estate what i've gleaned from like places like uh, argentina is that when there's a devaluation event or something like that or a big boost in inflation uh real estate values close to the city centers tend to remain more intact. Like even 2001 Coralito, uh, I believe Buenos Aires, the, 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 the wealthier neighborhoods only lost like 25% at the bottom, mm. whereas other parts of the country would go down. Like I believe like 50% in dollar terms. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very, very hard. There's people who say like, Oh yeah, you know, lever up and, you know, get a big mortgage, a 30 year mortgage. And then, <laughs> You know, um, and then at eight percent, yeah. Well, yeah, but this is kind of like, yeah, but then you're tied up in an illiquid asset, yeah. And and there's so much around that that's unpredictable. I feel hesitant to actually recommend something like that. Whereas with Bitcoin, no matter what, you will have optionality. Mm. Um, so it's it's hard for me to look be much beyond. Uh, just have, if I'm if I have no idea who my audience is and it's mm -hmm. not a one-on-one -on -one conversation to to make many more suggestions and yeah, buy Bitcoin, maybe some gold, uh, just assets that have high scarcity, lower third, third party risk and high liquidity. Mm. Yeah. I think that, um, I'd agree with all of that. I think, you know, one is just preparing like psychologically without being pessimistic, you know, <laughs> like to basically be like, Hey, if you read history, I think everybody, um, everybody has this perspective of um, things always getting better. And that's just not wig history. Yeah. You know, that that's not the way the world works that, uh -huh. you know, things can get worse mm -hmm. um, and that wealth can be destroyed when mm -hmm. currencies hyperinflate wealth is destroyed. And what, when, when, when quote wealth is destroyed at a societal level, that means that life might just get more difficult. 
you know, in aggregate for everybody. And some people might do better or worse in that world, but that we're in a period where, you know, we've got to take some pain and to be okay, like to be okay without having to like go to like the doom and gloom of like, well, this shoe's going to drop and then that's going to drop and I'm going to go get in a hole and not be able to act. It's just being like, okay. in like whatever comes in discomfort. And while it's actually the case that, you know, things do get worse for periods of time. And that's, that's perfectly normal history that humans also survive, you know, and, and weather the storm. And so if you're just trying to think about it financially, it's not the right way to think about it. It's like, okay, I need to be prepared, but I don't need to be afraid of my own shadow and constantly looking behind me. I've got to be able to put one foot in front of the other. And so, um, I think that part of it is having Bitcoin, obviously that's the way the world's going. I think hearing stories that, that, that you've shared, Mm of traveling the world and experiencing these places with hyperinflation. Well, the, as disastrous as that is by having access to a form of money that's working, things don't just devolve into the, Mm -hmm. the stone age Mm -hmm. and that Bitcoin is a form of money that we all know works. And so whatever pain is going to have to be felt, it's not necessarily like the financial gain that we will get whenever the world needs, figures out that they all need Bitcoin. It's that, the trade routes will be far more resilient than they otherwise would be if Bitcoin didn't exist. Like our abilities to coordinate trade, having a form of money that's working throughout this is, is, is why there's such a great source of optimism. And then it's like, figure out a skill that you think on the other side of that horizon, people are actually going to need, right? Because if you're a banker sitting in one of these financial institutions and that is your skill and that's the thing that puts food on the table for you, like that's probably not going to be there. You know, like if you're somebody that's a social media influencer, like maybe not going to, you <laughs> <Damn>. know, uh, <laughs> that, um, but you know, also I like one recommendation is like get a good friend, like Cole Bolton across the, you know, mm-hmm. across town that sells beef for Bitcoin, you mm-hmm. know, or like make good friends with a guy who knows how to get, you know, oil and gas out of the ground, you know, like figure out the things that are, you know, go, get, of, go learn welding. Yeah. Yeah. Like figure so, out how to yeah. weld, you know, like, <laughs> Like learn how to, you know, like, I don't know, um, that the things that if you were to say, yeah, maybe a good exercise is like, if I was to cut out five things Mm -hmm. and then go through the exercise, what are the five things I couldn't cut out? That's Mm -hmm. a good, generally good exercise to figure out like what really matters and what's important. And, you know, start to question is like, Hey, you know, a lot of people mine quote mine fiat, Mm. like go to their day job. That's a, that they know is just a fiat existence and that they probably know that on a Bitcoin standard isn't going to be there. It's like, well, maybe get off that trap <laughs> and, you know, start to deliver value to the new world. Yeah. I, I agree with almost all that. Probably all that. Um, and I, one thing that I've seen sometimes people get stuck in is like this idea, like, but people don't understand and, and kind of like having a fear for everyone is going to lose their mind once the crisis is here. <laughs> And, uh, and, and in a way that we need to warn everyone or, or talk loudly about this so that the world is kind of prepared. I think, I think that's not a very productive use of like your resources and your time. I think we've seen with the COVID crisis that even people who were in denial about it a week beforehand or whatever, they just adjusted very quickly. Like, and you see the same in, 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 in all kinds of countries that go through financial crises. The adjustment, that's why we're human. Like we are so adaptable. We just adjust to the new situation. And so rather than like trying to, I don't know, kind of 
shake the world and move the world, which you by definition cannot do, uh, I would suggest like just sweep in front of your own, you know, your own uh, front yard and um, uh, or your, your own house and just just make the preparations that you think you'll do. And and it's almost like because the whole world is already insolvent or your country is already insolvent. The only thing you could do by quote unquote warning as many people as possible is just make the crisis happen a little faster. Like that's, you know, there's only so many lifeboats and a lot of people are going <laughs> to lose their shirt. It's, it's baked into the cake already. Right. It was just, we can't escape that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that, uh, you know, focusing on your own skills is, is a, is a big one too. I like that a lot. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, try to have quality people and that you hang out with and, um, that maybe later you'll you'll work with, yeah, yeah. So stoicism, self sufficiency, mm. yes. self sovereignty that seem to be very aligned with Bitcoin. Mm. So very very uh, fun and interesting conversation. Thank you guys both for uh, for for the conversation. Anything that you guys are working on, or anything that uh, uh, my audience could benefit from. Yes, but I, I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> I mean, I am really excited just about, because I, I feel like that's, we're talking about the crisis, but like, mm -hmm. just to keep in mind, like what's, what's out there potentially, you know, like mm -hmm. a revival of, of, I mean, we were talking mm -hmm. about some of the art that's collected mm -hmm. in the Vatican and, mm -hmm. you know, all these like times of the Renaissance and things like that. Like people forget, like those are chaotic times. Like those mm -hmm. were not like, oh, everything is great and everyone's happy. Like, you know, and so I think that, you know, some of the amazing things that are going to happen, we will see, like, you know, even during some of these crises, we'll see, you know, just incredible feats of courage, of beauty, of, of, and that excites me. Like we don't have to wait for the promised land and, you know, maybe it'll be only my children. Like I, I, I feel really happy and kind of privileged that I can, you know, be here and, and, and kind of see this uh, incredible transition. And yeah, I mean, we need some creative destruction. Like we need, to, we need the, the economy to in, shift entirely. So yeah, there's going to be pain, but, but on the other hand, I so love that I live in this period where we're crawling out of denial rather than having to live in like peak fiat where there just <laughs> seems to be nothing else. Yeah. Amen. To that, you know? um, well, one, I'm now I'm interested in what Tur's working on next. So I'm have to pry once we get off the air. Um, what I, so I'm in the process of finalizing my book. Um, luckily had you, as an accountability partner, um, you got yours to market a little bit before me, but um, going to be launching a crowdfund, maybe probably but before this um, podcast comes out, depending mm. on how qu quickly you get it out there. Mm. Um, but that book will be an adaptation of um, the series that I wrote from 2019 to 2020 called Graduate Then Suddenly. Mm. Um, print version should be ready by October, uh, but the crowdfund will start this week. And then also started contributing to Zapprite, mm. uh, which is a company that helps businesses accept Bitcoin payments and providing accounting tools to, to make that process and the shift to a Bitcoin standard more seamless, specifically focused on business invoicing as well as e-commerce and payment links. So um, so check that out, Zapprite.com, Z-A-P-R-I-T-E. So the right is R-I-T-E. Um, if you want to start get accepting uh, or start to accept Bitcoin payments. The idea is we enable people to receive Bitcoin payments non-custodially, um, but we host the server, so you don't have to. Okay, great. Well, thank you guys both. And uh, yeah, excited to get this podcast out. Thanks, Thanks Jimmy. Jimmy.
Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com.